The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. Today we're looking at the long history of the British short story with a man who estimates he read as many as 20,000 of them on his way to compiling an anthology which will have a place on my bedside table for years to come. Come to think of it, at two volumes and 1,400 pages, who needs a bedside table? Alongside the familiar names, from Daniel Defoe via Arthur Conan Doyle to A.S. Byatt and Ali Smith, are some brilliant rediscoveries, such as this tale of a young Yorkshirewoman bracing herself for a new job. Her stomach felt unquiet. She'd had too little breakfast, had walked too soon, had slept too spasmodically and a description of a football match vivid enough to turn even the determinedly unsporty Philip Hensher into a fan. I wanna come back home. But we begin with an irresistible yarn, the 40-litre monkey, from one of the writers I'm most delighted to have discovered. He's Adam Marek. And I suspect he'd get on famously with one of the anthology's better-known contributors, P.G. Woodhouse. I once met a man with a 40-litre monkey. He measured all his animals by volume. His Dalmatian was small, only 18 litres, but his cat, a Prussian blue, was huge, 5 litres, when most cats are 3. He owned a pet shop just off Portobello Road. I needed a new pet for my girlfriend because our last two had just killed each other. The ideal pet, the owner told me, is 12 litres. That makes them easy enough to pick up but substantial enough for romping without risk of injury. What did you have? A gecko, I replied. I guess he was about half a pint. You use imperial. The man smirked and gestured towards a large vivarium in the corner. Iguana, he said. Six litres and still growing. Oh, right, I said. I also had a cat. She must have been four litres, maybe more. Are you sure? he asked. Was she a long hair? Because they look big, but when you dunk them, they're small, like skinny rats. She was a short hair, I said. How old? Four. That volume would have dropped anyway, unless you mixed tripe with her food. Did you do that? No, I said. She ate tuna fish. No pet ever got voluminous eating tuna, he smiled, almost sympathetic. "'What's the biggest thing you've got?' I asked. "'That would have to be my 40-litre monkey,' he smiled. "'May I see it?' "'You doubt my veracity? Not at all. Is it a secret monkey?' "'No, he's not a secret monkey. "'I've shown him in South America, Russia, and most of Western Europe.' "'What sort of monkey is it?' "'He is a baboon,' he said, raising his eyebrows. "'A baboon?' What do they usually scale in at? Twenty-three litres. How did yours get so big? I won't tell you. Have you any idea how many thirty-litre monkeys I got through before I hit on the right combination? I shrugged my shoulders. The man rubbed his brow between his thumb and forefinger, as if wondering why he was even talking to me, the owner of a dead half-pint gecko. 
I was getting claustrophobic and started to leave when he grabbed my arm and said, Would you like to see my monkey? I nodded that I would. He locked the front door and led me up a narrow staircase. Names were written on every step and alongside a volume. Edgar, 29 litres. Wallace, 32 litres. Merion, 34 litres. Also on every step were paper bags of feed, books and files stacked up against the wall, so that I had to put each foot directly in front of the other to walk up, and I kept catching my ankle with the edge of my heel. So how did your pets die anyway? the man asked. The cat managed to slide the door of the gecko's tank open. She tried to eat him whole, and he stuck in her throat. Humph! the man laughed. The man took me to a door which was covered in stickers of various animal organisations I'd never heard of. Big possums of Australasia, American tiny titans. The door had a keypad, which he shielded with one hand as he punched the code with the other. A pungent stench of meat and straw and bleach poured out of the room, and I heard a soft sucking noise, like air drawn into a broken vacuum. But I may have imagined this. Being in the room felt like being suffocated in an armpit. Something was shuffling about in a cage in the corner, grunting softly. The perimeter of the room was like the staircase, with books, files and bags of dried foodstuffs piled up the walls. The floor was covered in black linoleum, and the section in front of the door was rough with thousands of scratches. Opposite the door was an archway, which led into a bright bathroom. He had a huge glass tank in there with units of measurement running up the sides and extra marks and comments were written in marker pen. He's over there, the man said. Stay here and I'll let him out. Does he bite? I asked. Not any more. That was Richard Lee reading the first of today's excerpts, the opening section from The 40 Litre Monkey by Adam Marek. The brainiac behind the collection is Philip Hensher, book a shortlisted novelist, critic and provocateur, but not until now particularly associated with the short story. Selecting 90 from the thousands in existence was always going to be an arduous and politically charged business, as much for what gets left out as what is included. So what demon was it that drove him to take it on? Well, I think that you can always find the time to do something if you really, really want to do it. And I've always loved short stories, but when the invitation came from Penguin to do this, I thought, um, do I really know about short stories? Do I know about the history? Do I know about um, what's out there? And instead of um, just putting the short stories that I knew and loved already in the book, I just thought I'll, I'll clear a couple of years and I'll do nothing but read through the magazines that first published them through collections that uh, first produced these uh, acknowledged masterpieces, unheard of writers, their one chance at, uh, at success, and just um, discover what it really looks like. Um, there seem to be so many prejudicial judgments about what the short story, and perhaps particularly the British short story, actually is, that was just seeing a whole art form through a, a tiny, tiny keyhole, as though if a short story didn't fulfil what we think of now as uh, characteristic short story material, then it wasn't interesting to us. But I just wanted to go back and just... Um, 
dig stuff up and I dug dug up far too much stuff I mean the the anthologies they look enormous but you know I had to reduce it from a much much larger selection you said that you you read 20,000 stories can that well, be true? well it's, it's something like that I would think I I guess I was reading about I mean if you read a, a volume of um, the Strand magazine, for instance, there are three or four short stories in every issue of the Strand, and there was a, an issue published every month. And it wasn't difficult to read through, you know, four or five years of the Strand in a in a day. Putting it like that makes it sound like a lot of hard work. I kept forgetting while I was doing it that I was working at all. It seemed to me that I was just lying on the sofa reading one collection after another. The definition of short story is mm. it's quite long short stories. I mean, they're 4,000 to 15,000 words. Well, I don't think that's my definition. I think that um, what I say is that it seems to flourish at about, the, at about that length. I became very sceptical of the idea that you can say a short story must do this or it becomes a novel or it becomes a piece of flash fiction because, you know, short stories, they, you know, there are short stories out there like um, Conrad's Typhoon that are 30,000 words and I would have loved to have put that in but it's, you know, it's nearly 100 pages long. Um, and there are certainly, you know, short stories, particularly now, that are being written just um, just a few, you know... The 2,000-word short story. Two, the 2,000-word short story. The 2,000-word short story has been going for a long time, but, you know, just to fill up a little space in a, in a magazine. But um, I guess the new thing is the Lydia Davis 30-word short story, mm-hmm. um, which is, is, is interesting. And actually, I don't want that to be separated out from the great history of the the short story i don't want it to start being viewed as something called flash fiction where you know we read it separately i want it to take its place really so um no i couldn't really produce a definition i think that anyone who who works on the short story you know pretty soon they realize that all definitions are not very helpful and uh, leave too much out so let's go right back to the beginning um and your first inclusion is daniel defoe the beginning of the novel as well as the beginning of the short story, you posit. Yes. I mean, where does the short story begin? You know, is it just a piece of fiction below a certain level? Does or? it not include Chaucer? Well, Chaucer's in verse, and I think, you know, that that way madness lies, really. I th- don't think it includes everything. Interestingly, you know, the f- the term short story comes up very, very late. It doesn't come up till the 1880s. And I don't think that the short fiction that the Elizabethans were writing has quite the right bearing on the short story in its high period. I began at the beginning of the 18th century because you could feel um, short fiction starting to define itself against the backdrop of the, the novel. And that seemed to me the crucial relationship. I wouldn't say that short stories, as we really understand them, are quite there until the beginning of the 19th century, people like Galt and Scott are definitely writing short stories at that point, and the the sort of um, morality tales that uh, Hannah Moore was putting out to improve the lives of the uh, the working classes. You know, read this story and uh, and think on it, and then improve your life. I think that starts to take on a uh, a very kind of short story like quality. Probably, though, the um, 
the the short story as we really understand it comes into its own with the uh, with the expansion of um, uh, of uh, of journals of magazines um, in the middle of the the nineteenth century. Um, certainly, when you're reading. Um, you know, household words, and uh, all the year round, the uh, Dickens's two major magazines. You know, you can see the presence of the the short story really starting to assert itself. And then, at the end of the nineteenth century, when the products of the uh, of universal education come to to adulthood, they want to read magazines. Uh, they have a lot of money as clerks to um, to throw at these things. It not only um, it not only creates a huge audience for the short story in magazines like The Strand, um, but it creates a whole new class of authorship, and all sorts of very interesting people start emerging from every place in society, and they can just turn up at magazines and say, "Will you publish this short story of mine about what it's like to grow up in the East End of London?" So you people, have a, quite a few working yeah. class writers who I've yes. never heard of before. Yes, people. I don't know whether you've heard of them. I would have liked to have had um, Israel Zangwill in. He's uh, a novelist who writes some um, writes short stories about um, the um, Jewish immigrants in in the East End in the 1880s. There's um, Arthur Morrison, who's not exactly undiscovered, but he's um, he's perhaps a little bit. Um, Neglected, and then a little bit later, there are people like uh, Jack Common, who comes from a very um, impoverished background. I think the interesting thing is that if you're just um, turning up to a magazine and, and saying, "Here, this is you know three thousand word short story," it's an, it's a glimpse into my life. Then a magazine might very well say, "Well, let's give it a go." You know, they don't, they're not investing a lot in an author, so the short story starts to become a place where all sorts of quite marginal, marginal figures in society. Including women, you make in- the point that women at that well, point were quite marginal. In, well, I, in think that, I think that actually it, is, it, it, was, quite, it was rather easier for, um, for a, an inexperienced woman without connections in the, the literary world to get published almost from the, the very start. It's, uh, it's certainly true. I, mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, women are... Uh, rich and well-connected, you know, woman is in the same kind of category as somebody who's straight off the the boat from the pogroms in in Russia. But certainly, they are disadvantaged in most of literary endeavour, most artistic endeavour. But somehow, you know, they manage to get a foothold on um, on publication through the short story. And the other point you make is that it's incredibly well paid. I mean, there's a really startling fact that the Strand would pay up to three hundred and fifty pounds for a story at a time when doctors were earning 400 pounds a year yes well this is (laughs) (laughs) excuse me this is a situation that's never going to rise again it's the period between the um the appearance of um of uh, a universal uh universal education and the creation of the cinema so before the First World War, the 1890s and the, the, up to the, the First World War, there was a huge readership. You know, it was a big enough readership to keep um, 34 full-time magazines publishing short fiction in business. It, it's, it's unimaginable now. But it, it carried on, I would say, until the 
1950s, 1960s, and then it begins to trail off a little bit. It's certainly true that um, no one is ever going to make those kind of sums regularly from uh, from short fiction ever again, but it was something that was worth undertaking and worth taking seriously. Um, that's the that's the key point, I think, that um, it encourages authors to not to dash something off because, you know, because it's Friday afternoon and why not? But to think very seriously, how am I going to please this editor, this readership? You frame the whole thing as a, as a British tradition, but within that British tradition, there are lots of different traditions of short story writing, aren't there? There's the ghost story, for example. There's mm. the, the little social observation vignette. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's uh, it's a very kind of it's a very rich tradition, really. There are all sorts of um, uh, generic undertakings. Some of which I found uh, found space for. Some of which were a little bit trickier. Um, I think the um, the thing that I slightly regret not finding more space for, which were very common, were um, short stories with a historical setting. The the love story as well. I mean, there's the love story is just a you know a pillar of uh, of the short story endeavour. But um, you know there's there are a couple there are a few in the anthology, but. Um, but not not really as prominent as they are when you're reading through a magazine. Um, there are some things that the short story does terribly well, and one of them is the the ghost story, the story of suggestion and implication, the story that um, that just gives a, a hint of something absolutely dreadful about to burst out. And um, you mentioned an, um, the, the M. R. James story that you oh, included. Yes. <laughs> There's a, there's a wonderful M.R. James story, The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral. And the thing that's very impressive about that is that the single most terrifying line in the whole story is, there is no kitchen cat. And when you get to it, your hair stands on end. But there are all sorts of people who um, who rather enjoy writing the occasional ghost story as well as specialists. It suits the the British taste for a little bit of understatement as well as the the form itself, I think. There's one writer that, I mean, there are lots of writers here that I discovered for the first time, and there's one writer called Malachi um, Whitaker, who's actually, whose hmm. real name was Marjorie. Why did she call herself? I have no idea why she called herself Malachi. She's an extraordinary talent and quite an interesting case of um, the sort of um, the sort of writer that gets left out of histories. She was um, she, a northern woman. She was from Yorkshire. She, from Bradford. From Bradford. Yes, she was the daughter of a craftsman bookbinder, one of eleven children, uh, and she published four collections of short stories with Jonathan Cape between 1929 and 1934. Um, and I've discovered that um, he never paid her more than thirty pounds advance for any of her collections, and then. Um, she just stopped. She just stopped publishing. But they're extraordinary stories. They're absolutely insane, some of them. Some of them are... Um, one of them takes place in the interval between a uh, retired grocer falling out of a fifth-floor window and hitting the ground and killing himself. Another one is four pages long and covers 70, 70 years in, um, in a woman's life. This it's one that you've included is about a, it's a sort of story of self-improvement, isn't it, involving yes. a, a young woman. Mm. Um, her and first we, day at work. Her first day at work yes. in a company that's been burnt out rather yes. dramatically. 
<laughs> it's, it's a glorious story. It's never been reprinted since 1934. Um, I think that quite a lot of um, the best short stories from that time are, this is, you know, early 1930s, they are asking what are women supposed to do with their lives? And this is um, an intelligent woman. She's clearly not been um, educated up to her capacity she is entering into this extraordinary little society where you know four people have worked with each other forever and some of them hate each other and some of them put up with each other and she's making sense of it she's making sense of the world and it's so full of um, sensory detail really and the sense that anything at all might happen and on you know anything at all happening your an entire life can take a particular direction i do think it's a wonderful wonderful story I'm very much hoping to do something more for malachi whitaker actually um i'm investing quite a lot of energy on her behalf at the moment well let's hear a little bit from courage by malachi whitaker isabel allett was 20 plump pleasant and usually smiling she had bright, very blue eyes, and small hands with soft palms. There were many things she did not understand, such as people biting their nails, or really liking beer or black coffee, or spitting in the streets. Even though she pondered over these things for a long time, she got no nearer to understanding. The day was a January one. Light-skied but piercingly cold. Yet she wore a thin navy coat and skirt and a small purple silk hat. Her underclothes were thick and cheap without abiding warmth, but she had on a good pair of dark wool stockings. She had had to put on these new spring things because she'd got a job at last and the old, the very old, thick coat, which had been good enough for the eight o'clock job, was certainly not good enough for the nine o'clock one. She walked along, through Forster Square, looking about her, taking everything in. Because it was the first morning, she was a quarter of an hour early. Her stomach felt unquiet. She'd had too little breakfast, had walked too soon, had slept too spasmodically. It had been all right to say jokingly the night before, if you're waking, call me early. Call me early, mother dear. But that made for thoughts like chasms. Supposing mother should be late. Why mother should be late, with the two other girls still setting off at twenty to eight, she did not know, nor she was just terrified. Why had she left her old job for this new one full of perils? She kept on walking dreamily along. Glad that she was no longer to use her hands for making senseless paper ornaments. Who's going to buy these awful things? She used to cry to Jem the foreman. I wouldn't. Yet, for some reason, she made the things better and more quickly than anyone else. There had been something fascinating in the long, close room, in the bent heads of the other girls and women, in the ceaseless chatter that went on in undertones. Now and then, everybody would sing. Not very tunefully, but good-naturedly and happily. It depended on Jem's mood as to how long this went on. Sometimes he would scowl and grimace, and the song would drop dead. Other times he would join in with apparent indifference. Oh, Jem, 
thought Isabel. I shall miss you terribly. How could the world go on without Jem? Without Mrs. Holroyd, without Minnie Parkinson, and Beryl. They all called Beryl Barrel because she was so fat, yet Beryl was a lovely name. The sun went behind an early morning cloud, and the keen wind struck through the thin costume and made goose lumps rise on the girl's skin. Her steps had slowed. She was afraid to go any further. Abruptly, she turned and walked back into the square again. Surely, if she walked along Swain Street and down Leeds Road, she could go into the old door, up the old steps, and slip into her old chair, gather up her old stock of paper and scent and gum, and just go on with the work where she'd left off. But it was twelve minutes to nine. The girls would have been there over three quarters of an hour. They were always early because Jem's train got down early, and anybody arriving at five minutes to eight had a chance of talking to Jem for a little while. Jem was married, and had two little boys, yet none of the girls except Mrs. Olroyd has ever seen his family. The others just didn't believe in it. Jem was Jem, and he existed in this dreamy, scent-laden atmosphere. He was dark, and thick, and short, almost Italian-looking, with bluish teeth and a strong, nicotine-full breath. The thought of the room full of girls hovered about him. Even the little fifteen-year-olds would seize any excuse to go up to him. Help me, Jem. I don't know how to finish this. Get Mrs. Olroyd to help you. Am I a wet nurse, you young tarts? Give me a pain in the neck. Young tarts? The fifteen-year-old would sidle back, blushing. Didn't tart mean sweetheart? But Jem had spoken. Isabel crossed over the station and looked at the bookstall. People were buying morning papers so quickly that the two men could scarcely cope with them. She could not understand why they should buy or want these papers. And yet, suddenly, she took tuppence out of her bag and bought the Times. As soon as she had done it, the thrill that had entered left her. Why had she spent her only tuppence? She had no more, not a cent. Each morning, her mother gave her her expenses for the day. From Saturday's spending money, she'd had to buy gloves and a scarf. There'd been nothing left but this tuppence. Why, then, have bought a times? And the station clock said six minutes to nine. Folding the paper under her arm, she ran through Foster Square again and up the hill. This, then, was the street. This was the office in which she'd had her interview in which she'd said she could type, having practised on a friend's typewriter but five times, in which she'd said, no, she could not do any shorthand, but she would learn. The office in which she'd been praised for her clear writing. But I don't always write as nicely as this, she'd said in a burst of frankness. I took a lot of trouble with that letter. The office in which she'd grinned and felt pleased and sure at the moment that she could do anything that was asked of her. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. 
See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. The Guardian has always been a community of readers, journalists, and contributors. And now our live events are bringing these people together. The Guardian events are the Guardian at its best, which is a two-way conversation involving the reader and having a real, genuine, thriving debate. Could be anything from food and culture, arts, to politics, to foreign affairs. To see what events are coming up and to check out the benefits of membership, go to members.theguardian.com. Also, subscribe to the Guardian Live podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud and other reputable audio platforms. So moving forward into the 20th and 21st century, now this is where you hit the controversy, isn't it? And there have been lots of reviewers who are chewing you up for excluding Rose Tremaine, Hilary Mantel. You know, how could you exclude Hilary Mantel? Well, all I can say is this is an anthology. It's not an encyclopedia. You know, there there was room, I reckoned, at the end for 15 living authors. And, you know, some of them simply have to be there. There's no So who who has to be there? Tessa Hadley has to be there. V.S. Naipaul has to be there. I think that um, I think that Zadie has to be there. I think she's going somewhere so exciting with the uh, um, with the short story. And then um, there are and you know A.S. Byatt has to be there. There's I, there's no there's no way that it's dedicated. The, connect, the collection yes. is dedicated. Yes, to but A.S. it's not not it's not because of that that she has to be there. So you know there are people who are just solidly at the centre of the the endeavor really and after that there's often a question do i want to bring the reader's attention to um an author who everyone is telling me is a fantastic author but i personally am not that enthusiastic about or do i want to bring the reader's attention to an author whose you know last volume of short stories maybe has been a little bit forgotten about but which is clearly an absolutely sublime volume and the two that I was determined I was going to put in were um, Georgie Hammock who I think that I mean I think people know her reputation I think but um, uh, I don't think that uh, her short stories are in print anymore and People for Lunch is one of the most powerful um, volumes you could read it's from the 1980s I really wanted to bring you know her back into um, into awareness and I really wanted to bring back um, Douglas Dunn his um, his first volume of short stories Secret Villages was is just a magnificent volume it really is and this is the story that I put in here I, I can't imagine anybody reading it and not being overwhelmed by it so you know, there there just is a, a question here. You know, who are you going to do more for, really? And after all, you know, it is a um, personal choice, I think. Nothing um, to do with rights, the fact that Zadie Smith and Ali Smith, for example, are both published by Penguin and this is a Penguin book. No, no, no. They didn't put, uh, they didn't put any pressure on me at all. There was one question of rights, but it's, it, was with a, um, it was with a dead author. It was really just um, just me being um, being decisive, I think, and certainly there was a lot of pressure from readers who w- were saying to me, 
as the book was uh, was being put together, because I did make a point of asking almost everybody I know what they uh, what they thought should happen, and a surprising number of people said, "Well, I don't like short stories, and I never read them, but you must put in X, you know, whoever it was." And at that point, I raised an eyebrow because you know once you read once you read a lot of short stories, it becomes very clear that um, that the coagulation of uh, of public reputation and literary quality is not quite all it should be. You know, not just uh, in people writing now, but in people writing in the past. There's also a, a, an interesting question about how um, a collection can be bigger than the sum of its parts, isn't mm. there? So you might have a really great I find this with poetry as well. You find a great poetry collection, but actually if you look at the individual poems, none of them would be competition winners, for example. I mean, is that mm. possibly true of some of the writers that are most admired? Possibly like somebody like Helen Simpson, whose, whose collections all mm. have an arc, who is notably not included in this. Well, Helen was a, a difficult case. It was She was certainly a difficult case because I, I, I do admire her work, but she just wasn't right in this anthology, really. And I think her, her best collections, like uh, Hey Yeah, Right, Get a Life, I do think need to be read from, uh, from beginning to end. That's certainly true, but um, I tried not to make too much of that. There were certainly some some authors, and um, Walter de la Mer was a, a good example, who, when you plucked one story out from his, his collections, it looked very odd. It looked genuinely very odd, and I could, I could really imagine a reader, you know, going through the, the anthology and just not knowing what to make of it. I really wanted to create a reading experience for the reader of the anthology, not just to put one thing after another. And the thing that, um, that I particularly wanted to do was try to make sense of what I felt reading short stories in magazines before the First World War. And you could feel a sort of hysteria a kind of love of the demonic taking shape and you know the sequence in the, the sequence in the anthology just leads you on from one piece of total madness to another you know the devil keeps cropping up in extraordinary ways and then you know at the very end i've got a um, kipling short story that he published just before the first world war broke out called the village that voted the earth was flat um it uh, concludes with the uh, the House of Commons breaking into hysteria. Um, I think that um, that was a very important thing for me to try and tell a story to supply a proper reading experience. You have fun with the author notes. I mean, for example, you have this this writer who another writer I'm afraid I'd never heard of, Adam Marek, whose lovely story, uh, the forty liter monkey. I I really oh, like that story. Oh, it's a, it's wonderful. But story. You, you say you, his biog note says the son of a merchant sailor was born because of a confusion between time zones and the required timing of the contraceptive pill. His conception was announced by a Ouija board. I only state facts as they're supplied to me. I might uh, choose some slightly picturesque uh, facts, but <laughs> no, I haven't made anything up. It's all, it's all true. I enjoyed the author notes. You haven't written a short story collection yourself since, well, nearly 20 years. Uh, the last one was 1999, but there is going to be a new one in April called Tales of Persuasion. So is this by way of prepping yourself up? You're a teacher, you're a writer. Are you, have you been sort of self-instructing through Well, through I this? have, actually. And um, I did find myself, you know, in the, in the interstices of reading for the anthology, sometimes going off and saying, 
oh, I'm going to I'm going to do that. That's exactly right, you know. And um, it certainly encouraged me into um, into thinking of uh, things on a smaller scale than uh, than I have done for for some time. Uh, some of them are, are very directly inspired by uh, by short stories yeah. in in the anthology. If I were to ask you to pick one story out of all these 90, which would you pick? I would pick the Arnold Bennett Matador of the Five Towns, partly because I think uh, people underestimate uh, um, uh, Arnold Bennett. Um, And it's the most wonderful short story. It's about um, a, a visitor to a northern town being led from one place to another from a a doctor's house to a uh, a newspaper to a football match to a pub on the moors and everything is about how society fits together or fails to fit together it's the most overwhelming piece of work really i think um one of the things that I did want to do with the anthology was to get away slightly from the short story, which is um, just um, two people sitting in bed talking to each other, and to render what people really loved in the past, which was the short story that covered an immense amount of time and space and energy. And it, I thought, if this if this short story can convert even a football agnostic like me to the joys of a football match, then it must be doing something right. Let's end by hearing from Arnold Bennett. We went on the grandstand, which was packed with men whose eyes were fixed with an unconscious but intense effort on a common object. Among the men were a few women in furs and wraps, equally absorbed. Nobody took any notice of us as we insinuated our way up a rickety flight of wooden stairs, but when, by misadventure, we grazed a human being, the elbow of that being shoved itself automatically and fiercely outwards to repel. I had an impression of hats, caps and woolly overcoats stretched in long parallel lines and of grimy raw planks everywhere presenting possibly dangerous splinters, save where use had worn them into smooth shininess. Then gradually... I became aware of the vast field, which was more brown than green. Around the field was a wide border of infinitesimal hats and pale faces rising in tiers, and beyond this, border fences, hoardings, chimneys, furnaces, gasometers, telegraph poles, houses and dead trees, and here and there, perched in strange perilous places, even high up towards the sombre sky, were more human beings clinging On the field itself, at one end of it, were a scattered handful of doll-like figures, motionless. Some had white bodies, others red, and three were in black. All were so small and so far off that they seemed to be mere unimportant casual incidents in whatever recondite affair it was that was proceeding. Then a whistle shrieked, and all these figures began simultaneously to move, and then I saw a ball in the air... An obscure, uneasy murmuring rose from the immense multitude like an invisible but audible vapour. The next instant, the vapour had condensed into a sudden shout. Now I saw the ball rolling solitary in the middle of the field, and a single red doll racing towards it. At one end was a confused group of red and white, and at the other two white dolls, rather lonely in the expanse. The single red doll overtook the ball and scudded along with it at his twinkling toes. A great voice behind me bellowed with an incredible volume of sound. Now, Joss! 
and another voice further away bellowed, Now, Joss! And still more distantly, the grim warning shot forth from the crowd. Now, Joss! Now, Joss! The nearer of the white dolls, as the red one approached, sprang forward. I could see a leg, and the ball was flying back in a magnificent curve into the skies. It passed out of my sight, and then I heard a bump on the slates of the roof of the grandstand, and it fell among the crowd in the stand enclosure. But almost before the flight of the ball had commenced, a terrific roar of relief had rolled formidably around the field, and out of that roar, like rockets out of thick smoke, burst acutely ecstatic cries of adoration. Bravo, Joss! Good old Joss! The leg had evidently been Joss's leg. The nearer of these two white dolls must be Joss, darling of 15,000 frenzied people. That was Philip Hencher reading Arnold Bennett's Matador of the Five Towns. We also heard Susanna Tresillian reading an excerpt from Malachi Whitaker's Courage and Richard Lee reading from The 40-Litre Monkey by Adam Marek. They're all in the Penguin Book of the British Short Story, edited by Philip Hencher and published by, you guessed, Penguin. And that's all from us for this week. Next week we'll be rounding up a rich literary year with our picks of 2015 as selected by members of the Guardian Books team. And we'll be hearing from some famous fans of our children's books website. For now, from me, Claire Armitstead, and producer Susanna Tresillian, goodbye. Now come and meet me on the sunny floor. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.